For those of you who are new to Seminole Community Church over the last year, you're new anyway. Maybe some of you are even here for the first time today. I want to share with you kind of the early years of our church and how God got this whole thing kicked off. If I were to title this first message in our three-week series, um, instead of just Stone's Remembrance number one, I, I would entitle this, this one, I need, I need a Sign. Um, have you ever felt like you needed a sign from God and you've said, God, if you're going to do that, I need a sign. Just speak clearly. Um, God has spoken clearly to me several times. And the reason why this is a, one of the most exciting series of the year for me, um, and it's incredible for, for new attenders, because if it's your first Sunday or if you've just been coming for a couple of months, this is the series that kind of advances your connection. Um, it fast forwards your connection with Seminole Community Church. Um, by years, literally. And I always tell people, if you're here for the first or, co- this is your first or couple of weeks uh, here and you're here for Stones of Remembrance, God must really want you to be a part of this church. Because this is the stories that we're going to tell that kind of strengthens our faith, galvanizes our faith, those of us who've lived through these. Kim Richardson, who was singing this morning, she said, I've been here for 20 of these, 20 years I've been coming. Of course, Kristen, she's been here since literally. The, she was the first kid in the nursery. when We only had one kid in the nursery. Uh, she's 30 years old, and it makes me feel very old to have a 30-year-old daughter. Um, so that was, uh, she said, 16 years old she sang that song. Um, yeah, we, we drug our kids into this real early. As soon as they were, as soon as they were able to sing or run sound, uh, they were put to work. Uh, I told Nancy that... Um, Nothing fires me up for Stones of Remembrance like, like listening to the story. So every Saturday before we kick off Stones of Remembrance, I listen to about five years' worth of these messages. So all day yesterday I had my earbuds in, and I'm listening to about, I don't know, eight or nine of these, um, of these services, uh, both parts. And I, I have to be honest, if, if I had not lived through the – look, look. Some of the things I'm going to tell you today, and next week, especially next week, you're going to feel like, I don't know, that, that's like unbelievable. Let me just let you know why it seems unbelievable. It's because it's unbelievable. And I just want you to look around for people who are kind of nodding their head, who were here, who are eyewitnesses to the things that I'm about to tell you. Because there's no doubt in my mind that God is real, and he has done some things in front of us where you're just going, that's a God thing. There's no other explanation. So if, if I were to run into you, if we were to be at dinner or have a coffee, and you were to say to me, because this happens to me all year long, you know, tell me the story about how the Seminole Community Church started. I can do that. But here's what I always say. I always tell people. I always say, listen, Seminole Community Church should not exist. And I know a lot of people say things like that because we're a miracle. And really, we're not a miracle. We're like a, a million little miracles. Count on one, two, three, four is why we're still here. When you turned off of Orange Boulevard into this church parking lot, there should have never been a church here. I think I'll have you convinced of that, that, that God just kind of intervened. There were so many times where our church was on life support. There were so many times I was ready to quit. And it was like, beep, you know, we, we coded. And God just kind of sent an angel with a paddle and and, um, and, and brought us back to life, literally revived us, and gave us another Sunday. I used to always say, we're one, we're one, we're one Sunday, you forget to collect offering one time, we're one Sunday away from extinction. You know, one hurricane back then would have put us out, uh, out for sure. And it's true. Um, 
because we were kicked out. What I would say to people, I always say, you should come the first Sunday of November and come to our Stones and Remembrance because that's when I tell the whole story about how we we got started. Because you have to understand, we were kicked out of three out of four out of the first places that we ever met. We were kicked out of the funeral home. We were kicked out of the gym. We were kicked out of um, the school. How bad do you have to be as a church to get kicked out of of a funeral home, right? So we tell these stories, and we do this for a reason. Listen, this isn't something new. Families have been sharing the stories of their heritage for literally thousands of years. In fact, before we even had written word, before people would put pen to paper, they would tell the oral traditions and the stories of the the tribe and the nation and the family for thousands of years. They would be they would gather around some feast day and the oldest chieftain uh, they would say, Well tell us the story again and they would talk about how we got to where we are. I grew up in the in the seventies um, and one of the one of the uh, the shows that we watched every week as a family was Little House on the Prairie, which is an adaptation that ABC did of uh, the Laura Ingalls Wilder books, uh, the Little House on the Prairie books that she she wrote. And uh, ABC decided, man, these are these are real wholesome, real good uh, entertainment. Let's put this uh, let's put this to live action. And they set it in in uh, Walnut Grove. They, they went over to Bonanza and they got Little Joe and they drug him over Michael Landon and they made him uh, Michael Ingalls. And uh, he was Pa. And every year for their Thanksgiving um, their Thanksgiving episode, there would be some kind of big thing going on, and it would end with them gathering around their very modest table with some kind of guest there. And um, Half Pint, Laura Ingalls, would say to Paul, tell us the story. He'd get his fiddle out, and they'd dance, and they'd say, tell us the story. Tell us the story about the big journey, about crossing the river, about the blizzard. And, and they would share their history of how they got to Walnut Grove. Families have been doing this forever. You think about your home. You think about your Thanksgiving traditions. Did you go to grandma's house or did you have everybody over and you know you take your dining room table and you extend it and you add another table and another table. Next thing you know, there's 25 adults in there um, every year all sharing the same stories and you got the kids table over there where they're having macaroni and cheese and peanut butter and jelly. They're not eating turkey over there. Did you ever, do you remember when you graduated from the kids table to the big table? You know, somebody had to die to go to heaven for you to get a spot. Well, you know, and, and, and when you got there, when you got there, they, Aunt, Aunt Mabel would say, oh, tell them about such and such. Oh, tell them about Uncle, Har- Uncle Harvey. Oh, tell them about... And, and all the stories for the first time in your life, you, you've always been in this family, but now you felt like, I'm in the family. And some of the stories sounded like they... That was a tall, tall tale, and they're kind of laughing. You don't know for sure. Is this, like, true, or is this, like, are y'all kidding? But every year they tell the stories, and they share those with the next generation. Listen, I remember my granddaddy telling stories. Some of my favorite stories that he would tell would start out with somebody saying, Granddaddy, tell them about such and such. So my granddaddy was born in 1899. His name was Lester Dale Little, and he was a modern-day Tarzan. He raised, he raised his family in South Florida during the Depression. No jobs. He fed his family by hunting in the Everglades. Do you know what you hunt in the Everglades? 
alligators, snakes, and, and turtles. That's what he hunted. And they would tell these stories, hundreds of stories. And as I got to go to the big table, my granddaddy, I remember my granddaddy always planted a garden, a huge garden, like a garden the size of this room garden. And my granddaddy played poker. He taught me how to play poker. And he seemed like he was deaf. He never knew it was wild. Was wild again. You know, and, and my granddaddy, he was like, a, he was one of my heroes. So he would tell the stories about that. Tell them how you would hunt on the roof. He would, my granny, with her four kids, her four daughters in the back seat, because there were no seatbelts back then. What did you need seatbelts for? She would be driving down this road, this dirt road in South Florida, in the Everglades, with a canal on both sides. And my granddaddy would be car surfing way before this was cool. And he would be on the top of the roof holding on to, to both doors and and when he saw a turtle or he saw a snake or he saw a small alligator, small was less than five feet long to him, he would boom, boom, pound on the roof. She would slam on the brakes, and the inertia would, he would push off like this, and the inertia would, shoot like a human spear, he would fly into the water. I know it sounds unbelievable. And he would dive in there and go, and, and you got more money apparently if it was alive when you took it to whoever you're selling it to, because then they knew it was a roadkill. It was, it was fresh meat. So he would, he would grab this snake, clunk it over the head with the knife that he carried, put it in his mouth, and swim back to the, back to the car. I'm not kidding. Or an alligator. He would, he would, you know, rescue the alligator. And one time they tell the story that he, he got this rattlesnake, um, and it was like, it was like a nine-foot-long, fat rattlesnake, and they would bring it. they put it, and my granny wouldn't let them bring any of these live animals in the house. So you'd have them in a croaker sack on, the, on the, the, the clothesline, and he said, I put that rattlesnake in there, and I came back out the next morning, and the rattlesnake had a hundred little baby rattlesnakes. It was like hitting the lotto. It was like, woo, we got a lot of money for, 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 for the family that week. These stories, now my kids have never, they, he passed away, my granddaddy passed away when I was 16 years old. He was the first funeral I ever did was my, my great-grandfather's. And um, my kids never met him, but they've heard all these stories from me. I can't wait till Roman and Mila are old enough for I can tell them these stories without causing nightmares, right? Because they're only, they're only four and five years old right now. This is how we tell the next generation. And this is why I've asked our young people every year, they have to, the pavilion is full of high schoolers today. The middle schoolers are all watching over in the, uh, in the youth garage. They're, they're streaming it over there. I hope they got popcorn and chocolate for you guys over there. And no, middle schoolers, that your, your parents are going to ask you a quiz for all of these questions. So make sure you pay attention to all the stories that we're going to talk about. Because the reason why I want the kids to hear this, and this is very important, high schoolers, middle schoolers, listen up for just a second. Listen, you're going to go to college someday, and you're going to sit in freshman English, or you're going to sit in some philosophy class, or you're going to sit in some biology class, and this professor is going to get up before you. And he's going to say to you that all this stuff in the Bible is a big fairy tale, that this just never really happened. And he's going to tell you this, because he's so smart. He's going to tell you, or she's going to tell you, you know, 
your parents and your grandparents, they needed this religion as a crutch. They needed to believe these fairy tales and these fables because they just needed it to, to, to believe in something. But they're going to tell you this. They're going to say, but you're so much smarter than that. You need to trust in science. You need to trust in reason. Don't believe this, these fables, the fake news that's in the Bible. And I want you to know because you're going to hear it. And when you hear this, I want you to think of today, and I want you to think of all these stories that I tell you year after year after year, and all these hundreds of people that you see that have been through these stories. Some of you have been through, and you've seen these, these miracles that we're talking about. And I want you to know, when your professor says, that's all a bunch of bunk, I want you to know these stories. You've got to make a decision at that time. Pastor Jerry just crazy? Are all these people on drugs? Are all these people kind of pretending? Or did these things really happen? Because you're going to have to decide at that point, is this professor the smartest guy I've ever met? Or am I going to trust my own eyes? Am I going to trust my pastor? Am I going to trust my parents and everything they've seen? You're going to need to make that decision, and I hope it will be an easy decision for you to make. Like, hey, I don't have anything against the atheists. Look, this is the time of the year that the atheists come out of the woodwork. And they're like, in fact, sometimes they'll rent a billboard. And the billboard will be, did you see the billboard? It'll be like atheist.com or science.com people. And they'll say, you know, this season, choose reason. And what they they say is, um, let's see, it's it's a myth. The billboard I saw a few years ago had a silhouette of of the nativity with the wise men coming. And on the top of it, it said, it's a myth. This season, choose reason. And what they're saying is, everything we believe in is a big fairy tale. You can put your trust, you can put your trust in science. You hear a lot of that kind of bunk right now. I don't have anything against the atheists. If the atheists had been here the last 29 and a half years, guess what? They wouldn't be an atheist anymore. Because you can't go through what we've gone through and come to the conclusion that this is all a coincidence. That these things just just happened to happen. It takes a lot more faith. You know, it's more likely that we are in a galaxy far, far away or in the matrix than, than these all being some kind of crazy coincidence. It's no small miracle that Seminole Church exists. There are so many times, like Kristen pointed out, that I should have, that I wanted to quit those first seven years, the early years. Because starting a church is difficult and starting a, planting a church is almost impossible. Let me tell you what planting a church means. Some churches, they intentionally divide. So they, they multiply, they call it. They say, all right, look, we're a church of 1,000. We're going to take 100 people, and we're going to go start a campus over here, and we'll start a whole other church. That's awesome, probably the best way to do it. Other churches, they, they multiply by dividing. 100 people get mad at everybody else, and they're like, we're going to take our marbles, and we're going to go over here, and we'll start, you know, second such and such a church. you got first church, now we're second church, and there's a third church coming. And... Uh, and, and they split because they're mad at each other. And God has used that. Maybe you grew up in a church that was a split from another church. When you plant a church is when you go in and you start from scratch with, with no, no people. And it's a, it's a cold start. Um, and that's what we did. We planted a church. Now, let me just tell you how, how rare it is for a planted church to, to survive. One out of five make it the first year. Four out of five, 80% go out of business, they tank in the first year. We almost did. We almost did twice. It, God intervened. It gets, it gets uh, crazier. After that first year, 
only one out of 25, what is that, 4%? One out of 25 make it to their fifth anniversary. And then it gets really dicey. One out of 100, 1% celebrate their 10th birthday, and they don't really have good figures on the 25th. It depends on how you count it. It's either one out of 400 make it to their 25th birthday or one out of 1,000. But even if you go with the bigger number um, there, the smaller, uh, the smaller fraction, we, that's one quarter of 1% celebrate their 25th anniversary. We will celebrate our 30th anniversary next year, okay? It's a miracle. It's like a one out of 1,000 miracle that our church is still here. In fact, I had someone come. I talked to them this morning, been here 10 years. Rich, Rich English helps us set up every, every Sunday. And I remember Rich saying this first Sunday here, he walked up to me and he says, I got to warn you. And, you know, I mean, people say the strangest things. He says, I got to warn you. I said, yeah. He says, the last two churches we were at, they went under. They folded. <laughs> like, I said, come on in. We built this church strong. We ain't folding. You know, because I knew what God has already done. He hasn't brought us this far to leave us. And our church has even survived rich English. Okay, what a miracle. <laughs> Give them a hug when you see them. Um, so, so, young people, when your professor tries to convince you that this isn't true, you just look at them. You don't have to tell them. But you just say to yourself, no. There's no way all those things could have happened. So I always begin this, ser- this service by this series by asking you this question. Do you believe in miracles? Do you? I do because I have seen things happen before our very eyes in this church, on this campus, and several other places that can only be explained by that was a God thing. That was God. He has spoken to me at times, spoken to other people at times. Just, that's God speaking. That's, that's God. And he's done things, like Mallory was saying, giant million-dollar miracles that you just can't believe. Well, you can believe if you went through it with us, and we'll talk about that. So let me give you kind of the biblical basis this week for, how, for why we do this annual Stones of Remembrance. We didn't make this up. God made this up, or God instituted the Stones of Remembrance. Um, before we go... Did I already ask you, how many of you have been to a Stones of Remembrance service ever before? Raise your hand real loud and proud. Great. How many of you, this is your first Stones of Remembrance here? Awesome. Half and half. Some of you raised your hand twice. What's with that? You're like, hey, you know, I see that hand. I see that hand. You know, there's like candy involved, you know. Um, Joshua 3, verse 1. And I encourage you to read the next three weeks. Read this week, read Joshua chapter 3. Next week, Joshua chapter 4. The next week, Joshua chapter 5. Those three chapters of Joshua, what we base all this on. Have I mentioned lately you should read your Bible? Um, Joshua 3, 1 says, Early the next morning, Joshua and all the Israelites left Acacia and arrived at the banks of the Jordan River, where they camped before crossing. So they're about to go into the promised land. God has promised them the promised land a long time ago. And you remember, those of you who remember the Ten Commandments movie that Charlton Heston was in when he played Moses, or maybe you remember uh, Steven Spielberg's adaptation, his animated adaptation called The Prince of Egypt. You should show that to your kids. Um, Moses leads the children, or maybe you read your Bible like your pastor always says, Moses leads the children of Israel, the Hebrews, out of Egypt. There was ten plagues. And the last plague um, was the angel of the shadow of death. They, you remember, did pass over. They put the blood on the, over the, the lintel and the, the headboard on the, on the door. 
the doorposts, and God spared the firstborn of the Hebrews and took the life of the firstborn of the Egyptians. And let me tell you, the Egyptians had had it. They're like, all right, we want you guys out of here. We're done with you slaves. We're setting you free. Please leave. In fact, we will pay you to leave. They gave them gold and silver and jewels and said, please go. That's what God's going to use later to build the, uh, the tabernacle with. But after they had gone just a couple of days, Pharaoh got, he flipped. He, he changed his mind. He says, those are our slaves. We're going to go get them. So they, the whole Egyptian army comes after the children of Israel. This is a million men plus their wives plus their their children and all their livestock, and they're hemmed in between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army coming right behind them. And you know the story. God divided. Moses lifted up the staff, or Charlton Heston, if you watch that one, he lifted up the staff, and, and he divided the, the Red Sea, and they walked through into the desert on dry ground. And in three weeks, they make their way to the edge of the Promised Land, and they send in 12 spies to look at the Promised Land, because they're going to go in and take it three weeks after they left captivity. And you remember the report? Ten of the twelve come back and say, we can't do it. There's giants in there. We'll get our, you know, we'll be wiped out. And two men came and said, no, 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 no. God is with us. We can take this land if we trust God. Two men. Remember who they were? Joshua and Caleb. Those were the two that came back. Well, they voted. In ten to two, they decided, no, we'd rather wander around the desert for the next 40 years until they all died off including Moses, who's now gone to be uh, with God in heaven. And now we're here with just two men who were alive from 40 years later, Joshua and Caleb, and Joshua is who we're talking about. Joshua is who God speaks to. I'm going to read you Joshua chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. It'll be on the screen behind me and also on your devices. It says, The Lord told Joshua, he speaks to him, The Lord told Joshua, Today I will make you great in the eyes of all the Israelites. Now they will know that I am with you just as I was with Moses. Give these instructions to the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant. When you reach the banks of the Jordan River, take a few steps into the river and stop. The priests will be carrying the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth. Remember the Ark of the Covenant that I passed around a few few, uh, months ago? And and we talked about Moses at the first of June. They're carrying the Ark of the Covenant into the water. And then it says, when their feet touch the water, as soon as their feet touch the water, the water, the flow of water will be cut off upstream, and the river will pile up there in one heap. I know you don't have that verse, so you can't circle it. So circle it in your mind, heap. Okay? It says, meanwhile, the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Lord's Covenant stood on dry ground in the middle of the riverbed as people passed by, and they waited there until everyone had crossed the Jordan on dry ground. Now, God supernaturally dams up the Jordan River 17 miles upstream at a town called, of all things, Adam. They would call it Adam. And we don't know if God, like, put his hand there, if God blew the wind, or if he had an angel force field. However, I don't know what piles up in a heap means. I don't know how God did it. But God stopped the flow 17 miles, and then the water had to trickle down. Now, remember, when Moses and the Israelites came in to the desert fleeing the Egyptians, God divided the water. They saw the, the dry ground, and they walked. Nobody got wet till, till there was dry ground. But this time, God says, no, no, no. I want the priest to step out in faith first. 
I want them, this is at the flood stage of the Jordan River, the widest it is all year long. I want them to step into the water first and walk out. And then when you show that act of faith, I'll stop the water. He didn't even tell me he's going to stop the water, but he did it. They walk out and stop. I don't know, did they get ne- did they get knee deep? Did they get waist deep? Did they get neck deep? You know, where they're out there like, oh, you know, it's deep. They step out in faith, and then God acts. Often he asks us to take a step of faith. In fact, we're going to, in January, we're going to start a series called 40 Days of Faith. You need to start thinking now about getting involved in January. Our January Bible study is going to be 40 Days of Faith this year. We're going to talk about some of these faith stories. So all one million of the, of the Israelites come through, million plus kids, and on dry ground, and then God says, I want you to build some stones of remembrance. God started this whole thing by talking to one man. Listen, God started our church by talking to me. And it wasn't the first time that God spoke to me. The very first time I remember God speaking to me is when I was 14 years old. When you're 14 years old, you're between 8th and ninth grade. I want you to think about that. Next time you see an 8th grader, next time you see one of these, you know, one of these unruly, like me. I was, I was a teenager in our youth group. I was the last person you would ever think God would speak to. I was a smart aleck. I was the one asking the teacher all the stump the teacher questions. Yeah, but what about questions? I was leaning back in the metal chair, trying to tip my friends over, blaming on somebody else, smacking the gum. You understand? Last person you'd ever think that God would ever speak to in our youth group, yet God spoke to me. I was a youth over at Central Baptist in Sanford on, when they were on 13th Street. And we were having that summer of July of 81. You're talking about way back, way back in the 80s. Um, I, we were having a youth revival. And I have to explain what a revival is to all of our students, uh, middle schoolers, high schoolers. A revival is when you have church every night of the week for like seven days or ten days. And I know it's hard for you to conceive it because, oh, my gosh, if I had to go to church every night of the week, well, how in the world, why would anybody ever come every night of the week? Here's what you need to understand. We only had three TV stations back then. Okay, We had ABC, CBS, NBC, and Sesame Street Station, Okay, a fourth one. And by summertime, everything on TV was a rerun. We had already seen it. There was nothing to watch on TV that you hadn't already seen. I know this blows their mind because they have a million channels and archives of 10 or 15 years worth of stuff. We had nothing to watch. So churches saw the need and thought, hey, pizza party, youth revival, come to church every night of the week. So you went to church every night. It was like binge-watching church. Okay, It was like before Netflix, we were binge-watching revival. And we went every night and... On that particular week, God had been speaking to me about going into ministry, which I didn't even know what that means, right? I said to my youth pastor, listen, God's honest truth. My youth pastor's name was Skeeter, okay? I told you I grew up a little redneck. You know, if you, if you can hire Skeeter to be your youth pastor, you got a little redneck in your church, okay? And um, Skeeter was my youth pastor. I said to Skeeter, I said, I feel like God might be calling me in the ministry. How do I know? God called you in the ministry. How did you know? How would I know? You know what he told me? You'll just know. Oh, real helpful. You know, you'll just know. What? Yeah. So that particular, we, this was, our youth group always sat in the back. And we always sat in the back because 
we passed notes. This was before you could text because there was no internet, no cell phones, and nobody ever thought about carrying a phone with you. You know, so we would hieroglyphics. You know, we, we would draw, you know, and pass them down. No, 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 not to you, to her, yeah. And, uh, and then you could also sit back there and kind of, it was pews, so you could kind of sit real close to the one that you were sweet on and, you know, try to hold her hand or their, his hand. And, and uh, our, so our youth sat in the way back, and that Tuesday night, I felt, man, I just felt like I needed, they have an altar call at the end. Have you ever been to a church with an altar call where you can come off? They sing and sing and sing at the end, and the people come forward and either pray pray with the pastor or they give their life to Jesus and get saved or they, they join the church or at a revival, they get revived. So I come down and I take my pastor by the hand on Tuesday night. And I, I said, you know, I feel like God's calling me uh, in the ministry or he might be calling me in the ministry. And how do you know? How do you know if God's calling you? And you know what pastor said? You'll know. Turns out pastors don't know much more than youth pastors. Who knew? So I, he prays for me, and I go sit back down. And the next night, y'all, Wednesday night, it literally, somehow they talked the whole youth group into sitting in the front row. So we're all, like, right in the front row. I'm, Martin, I'm, I'm literally right where you are on that side. I'm on the aisle right in the front row. It's not really the front row. You know, this front row, this first row up here isn't really a row. Y'all know that, right? It's like for decorations. I don't know. It's like if, in, case the, in case the president comes or something, we have a row ready. In case Jesus shows up or Elijah maybe, you know, but nobody ever sits in this front row because, I mean, we only use it on, that's Christmas Eve, you know. You were late. You get to sit in the front row, right? Um, why? I don't know. But, you know, you, you're welcome to sit in the front row. But you never will. Um, so I'm in this row, second row, which is really the front row because it's the second row. And, um, and I'm, I'm standing there because they're singing and they're doing altar call and people are going to come get saved. And, and I'm praying with God and I'm like, God, and no lie, I'm not saying you should do this. This is what I did. I said, God, if you're calling me in the ministry, I need a sign. Again, not saying you should ask God for a sign, but that's what I did. And I'm not kidding. God is my witness. No sooner, I have my eyes closed. I'm praying. I'm not even saying out loud. I'm thinking of God. God, if you're calling me in ministry, I need a sign. No sooner had I said sign, I hear this voice. It's the youth revival preacher guy from Stetson named Eddie McQueen. He's still in ministry. Do you remember those? You ever been to one of those churches where they have the thrones up here for the pastor types? And, and they have their own little bench and everything. So he had been sitting right up here, and everybody's singing and, you know, waiting for the pizza at, at the end. And while I was praying, had to be while I was praying, he gets up and he's walking. He's walking to the microphone. He gets to the microphone just as I say, God, if you're calling me in ministry, I need a sign. And this is what he immediately says. I wrote it down because I wanted to get it. It's in my... It's in my journal. And Eddie McQueen says, as soon as I say, God, if you're calling me in ministry, I need a sign. He says this, I believe there's a young person here who needs to surrender their life to full-time ministry. <gasps> Boom! Next thing I know, I like took two steps, almost floated there. Uh, took my pastor by the hand, and we called him Brother Freddie. I went to one of those churches where everybody was Brother Freddie, Brother Tom, Brother, you know, and Sister Sue, and said, so, well, Please don't call me Brother Jerry. Um, nothing wrong with that. It's actually biblical. It's just a little weird uh, nowadays. 
And I said to Brother Fred, I said, Brother Fred, I believe that God is calling me to be a preacher. And he said, no. Now, he says, he says, no. But I heard it like, no. Nobody from my family had ever been called into ministry. Nobody from our youth group had ever been called into ministry. I stood before my church at 14 years old and said, I believe God has called me to be a pastor, called me to full-time Christian ministry. And, um, and then the craziest thing is six weeks later on August 15th, they let me preach on a Sunday night. 14 years old. What kind of crazy Baptist let, let a 14-year-old preach? And I preached on John 14, 16. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I preached everything I knew about the whole Bible in eight minutes. Y'all should have been here back then. You might have gotten out on time. You won't today. I'll go eight minutes over. Eleven years later in the same church, they had moved to a new location. God spoke to me again about starting this church. I, we had another guest preacher. His name was Ken Westbrook. And he says this. He's, he's, I was on staff at that church at the time. And um, I was a minister of evangelism there. And he says, Ken Westbrook says, we're looking for, we're looking for pastors with entrepreneurial experience to plant churches in the central Florida area. I had never heard pastor and entrepreneur in the same paragraph, much less the same sentence. Now, from my background, I had worked my way through school. So right out of high school, I had a job in sales. I ended up becoming a national sales director for a local, uh, small local company here in Florida. Um, and then I moved on to be uh, vice president of a seafood company in Jacksonville as I went through school and started a restaurant division that was very successful until it wasn't. And then I ended up starting my own carpet and floor covering business. And at the time that he said this, I had my own carpet floor covering business, and I was working part-time for, for this church. So I knew I was an entrepreneur, and I didn't know, what is this church planting thing? So he invited Nancy and I to go September the 10th, um, 1992. We went to a conference, a church planters conference in Orlando. They took all these young pastor types um, and you know, people that were, you have to be young and naive to plant a church. I mean, really naive. Um, you, you have to have a lot of faith and just believe that God can do anything, which I'm glad that that's who we were. We didn't have uh, a, a lot of, in fact, I said to some people that we were going to start a church, and one of my mentors was a guy from high school, my law studies and civics uh, teacher in high school, um, Whitey Eckstein, said to me, he says, so, so Walsh, let me get this straight. You have no money, you have no people, you have no building, you obviously don't have any brains. So he added that one. And he said, who do you think is going to come to this church? Are you playing the devil's advocate? But it's a valid question. To which my answer to him was, the only thing I can think of is, whoever God sends. Isn't that naive? Look around the room. This is who he sent. Yay, God. <laughs> he sent you and 29 years of views um, along the way. How could we start a church with no money, no people, no building? Yeah, I was wrestling with that question. And when God galvanized it was when we were building our house over. Nancy and I were building a house over on Ohio Avenue. Nancy's dad and I would work on it every night. We contracted for the slab and the... Uh, framing to, to go up, but we did everything else. Um, we, 
we hung the siding, we hung the drywall, we did the insulation, we did the roof, we built the cabinets, uh, we did the tile and all the floor coverings, we, all, all of those things. We, we did, it was an owner built. This was way before HGTV. Okay, this was way before this was a cool idea. I wish we would have videoed the whole thing. We could have been, you know, millionaires probably. Um, in fact, there was no YouTube back then because there was no Internet back then. Okay, so the only way you could figure out how to do these how-to things was Home Depot had a, a library full of VHS tapes. So if you wanted to learn how to drywall and spread mud, you went and got checked out their little video and you put it in there and like scrape, scrape. That's how you did it back then. Because we didn't know how. We were learning how. So I'm in, this, I'm in this house over here on Ohio Avenue, and I'm hanging insulation. Insulation's that pink stuff. That insulation, I'm stapling it in between all the studs. And I'm listening to a cassette tape, a sermon. This is before podcast, because there was no pod. So there was no podcast. No iPods existed. I don't even know if, I guess Apple was around, but they were still in the Macintosh business. So... So I hear this, this sermon by Adrian Rogers. Now, for those of you young people, let me pause real quick. You don't know what a cassette tape is. You'll have to ask your parents and grandparents to draw a picture of a cassette tape, okay? But really, you've seen one before, thanks to Guardians of the Galaxy. Because Peter Quill, he, he, has, he, grow, he has this Walkman. A Walkman's a, a cassette deck that's about five times the size of your phone that you wear on your belt so you could walk, man, and listen to music. That's what Sony made. And the thing that you put in there with the music, or in this case with a sermon on, was a cassette tape, okay? So I'm listening to this cassette tape on my Walkman. This is way before CDs. And, um, and I hear Dr. Rogers is talking about a story about he's talking about this young man who wants to go to seminary but doesn't have any money. And I kind of got my attention. And the, and the guy says, oh, Dr. Rogers, I believe God wants me to go to seminary, but I don't have any money. I don't have any way to support my family. You know, I, I, I just can't go. And Dr. Rogers said this. I wrote this in my journal. I want to make sure that I get it right. Dr. Rogers, in his deep baritone voice, he says, well, if I could get a millionaire to underwrite your entire seminary experience and pay for everything, would you go? He's like, I'd go in a minute. And this is what Dr. Rogers said. He said, son, if God has called you, he has given you way more. You have way more than a millionaire. And it hit me. You know what? I don't need money, people, or a place to start a church. All I need is God if God's called us. In fact, a couple months later, maybe even a couple weeks later, I was ordained my, in Jacksonville. My pastor, Homer Lindsay Jr., he, he told me this because he had planted a church in Miami from scratch. He had done this in the 50s, 1950s. And um, Dr. Lindsay looked at me and he said, Jerry, all you need to grow a great church is Jesus and a whole bunch of lost people. I thought, this is so profoundly simple. It's such depth in something so simple. You don't need anything but God and nothing else, right? So God began our church. I believe that night, Seminole Community Church was born in my heart. And when I said yes to God, I fell on my knees over here in all the fiberglass dust and said, okay, God, if you're calling us, we'll do it, even though none of this makes sense. God was speaking to Joshua in chapter 3. And then I'm not going to read you all chapter, the verses from chapter 4, but I'll, I'll tell you what happened. I'll read you just a couple of verses. God says, now once you, once you cross the Jordan, 
The Lord said to Joshua, Now choose twelve men, one from each tribe, and tell them to take twelve stones from where the priests are standing and carry them up out of the place where you camp tonight. We'll use these stones as a memorial, and in the future your children will ask, What do these stones mean? And they'll tell them. They remind us of what God did. We have our own stones of remembrance here that I tell these stories because I want to encourage you. This is what God has done. I want to encourage our church. This is what God has done. So whatever we face in the future, and I don't know what you're facing in your life. Maybe you're facing a relational crisis. Maybe you're facing a financial crisis. Maybe you're facing a, a health crisis. When you go through experiencing God, Dr. Blackaby talks about having, having spiritual markers in your past. And when you can look back in your past and go, you know, God did a miracle there, and God spoke to me there, and God intervened there, and God has done this. When you can keep track of those spiritual markers when God has in, he's been busy in your life in the past, what it does is it gives you the faith, the faith to face whatever you're dealing with in the future. So if you're going through a pandemic or you're going through a bankruptcy, or you're going through a divorce or you're going through a job change or you're going through a health scare, or maybe you got cancer, whatever it is you're facing, when you look back at those spiritual markers and realize God has not brought me this far to leave me, it builds your faith and gives you the strength to face whatever it is that you're facing going forward. This is why God instituted remind yourself of God's faithfulness Tell the stories to this generation and the next generation. So I want to give you just in the closing 10 minutes, I want to give you kind of how we got started. And I'm going to finish um, with the end of the, the Gold's Gym. So I'm just going to cover two places and we'll pick up next week. Um, so sit tight for, for 10 minutes. We started by meeting in, in a funeral home. Oaklawn Chapel. We told people we met Oaklawn Chapel. And there we go, Chapel. Cha- yeah, Oaklawn Chapel over on 46A, which is now H.E. Thomas. H.E. Thomas and Reinhardt Road. Reinhardt didn't even go. The extension, the mall didn't exist. It did it in right there at the cemetery. And they were like, you mean the funeral home? Y'all meet in the funeral home? I'm not coming to a funeral home, Jerry. And Pete, you wouldn't have come to a funeral home. Because it's kind of spooky. No matter what you do to a funeral home, you bring in all the bright plants and lights you want, it still smells like a funeral home. But all my pastor friends loved it because they were like, oh, Jerry, we hear people are dying to get into your church. You know, oh, Jerry, you know, I bet that's a great invitation. You know, you, you tell people, are you going to go to heaven? You just beep, 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 back that hearse right up, you know. And they just, ha, 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 ha. They laughed at us for a year. And eventually we got kicked out of the funeral home. Now, I forgot to tell this in the first story, in the first service, um, and it's one of my most intervening stories. Um, the fifth week of our church, we had 16 people. 16 people, and 10 of those were family, okay? Three of those were actually people, and three of those were like, well, two of them were missionaries that came to kind of pray for us. Um, A guy named Cliff Matthews and his wife Peggy were there. They were one of the two of the 16 people. And Cliff didn't tell me this then, but he told me this years later. He said, Jerry, when Peggy and I left, we didn't think you were going to make it. Yeah, no kidding. We stayed in the funeral home parking lot for almost two hours praying for God to not let you quit and for God to send you people. And um, Cliff, Cliff's long been in heaven. Um, you know, you just don't even know the people who are praying for you sometimes. When you need prayer, they're praying. You don't know it till later. They prayed us through that first month of May in 1993. But we ended up getting kicked out a year, almost at our one-year anniversary. And I was all upset. 
I won't tell you about my plan to keep us in. We were going to go to war with the funeral home. We were going to win because I had, I had friends in high places. But I was mad at God and um, that we were getting kicked out of a funeral home of all places. And, and then God spoke to me. It was like, you know, he said, here's your sign with Dr. Rogers. And he said, here's your sign when the guy spoke into the microphone at the youth revival. And this was like, I wasn't even praying God speak to me. And God's like, here's your sign. Um, so every, every week when we got to the funeral home, you know, sometimes in front of the front of the auditorium, they had all these orange pews. In front of the auditorium, it would be occupied by a casket. And I had learned, because they had so much turnover, I had learned how to move a casket. And um, some of you know there's, there's tissues on every, on every row at a funeral home. And I've taught, I've deputized many of you in case you ever have to move a casket. Uh, and the rest of you I'm going to train today. Um, so pay attention. Take some notes. So what you don't realize is that in, in, your, in a casket, when, you're, when, the remain, when you're, your remains are there, they don't lay you flat. They actually have this little key and this little jack system that brings you up between 17 and 22 degrees. So that when you're sitting in, uh, in, in the pews and you're at a viewing, you can view gram, grandma or grandpa and um, you can see them better. And before they close up the casket, they put the key in and, they, and they, they lower you back down. Well, when you have to move a casket, what they teach you to do, because, because they're jacked up at 22 degrees and their faces are heavily made up, sometimes what happens when you close the lid, the silk on the top of the lid and the padding that's up there gets pressed down onto the face. And when you open the lid back up, it's like the ghost of Grandpa. And everybody freaks out. When that happens, so they teach you to move a casket. This is god awful truth. You probably Google it, um, and uh, it's probably not even on Google. And they teach you to take these tissues and place them over the the face. Now that particular Sunday, that's exactly what I did. I came in. And I saw that there was a casket up front. It was a distinguished gentleman, and he was a veteran. The flag was right there. And I take the two. I take the tissues, and I it takes two, um, and I covered his face, and I go to. To, to, gra- to grab the lid. Now, I had done this a dozen times. I mean, very few pastors would go through all of this to preach to 30 people in a funeral home, okay? But rent was free, so that was, that was plus. So I go to grab the lid, and I'm just as I'm about to lower it reverently like I did every time that I did this, the air conditioner kicked on. Has the air conditioner ever kicked on in your house and changed the pressure in the room? Boom, a door slams shut. Well, the air conditioner kicks on and changes the pressure in the room, and just as I was about to lo- lower the lid, a gust, of, a gust of air comes up like this. And this tissue, it was like he went, it was like the deceased went. And this tissue stood up on his face like this. And I slammed it shut. And it is so cool. Every time I do this, the goosebumps show up. I never know if the goosebumps are coming. You can't like plan goosebumps. But look at that. Can y'all see those? My hair's standing up. Oh, I got goosebumps on. And here's what I said to God. We're out of here. I got the sign. And I went out to uh, my father-in-law over there and said, we're done. We're out of here. And I, I thought we were going to fight them. I thought we were going to, you know. And I'm like, no, God has spoken clearly. We're done. Scared the bejesus out of me. Yeah, kind of a thing. And we moved to Gold's Gym. Gold's Gym um, aerobic studio was out 
It's in the Reflections Plaza. It's where the Seminole County Water Department is now, if you ever go pay your water bill. Uh, it's on Lake Mary Boulevard almost all the way to, to uh, 1792. And the greatest thing about the, the rope, it was we traded one smell for another. We went from funeral home smell to a gymnasium smell, aerobic smell. And, um, and, and the nice thing, though, was we had mirrors on all the walls, so if you stood at just the right spot, our 50 people looked like 5,000 people. I preached really good there for like 16 weeks. And we ended up getting kicked out of there, too. But before... But before that, we got initiated. This was the first big, I would say, the first one of the first big miracles that the whole congregation was in on. Because the, the, the first time we met there, we set up on Palm Sunday, and um, we set up on Saturday night. And then that night, thieves broke in with this two-by-four. I've saved this for 28 years. And they threw this two-by-four through a plate glass door. And they came and they stole all of our sound equipment. Every bit of it. Everything we owned was gone. Now, everything we owned was only worth about $200. We got it at the yard sales. We, we soldered some stuff on my old JVC rack system. And um, I get a call in the middle of the night, 2.30 in the morning, from Rick Friend, the guy who, owned the, uh, who ran Gold's Gym. And he's like, uh, Reverend Walsh, we have a situation here. Listen, anytime I get a call in the middle of the night, it says it starts with Reverend Walsh. It's a serious thing. It's a bad day. And he says, it looks like all of your sound equipment's been stolen. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. So I'm driving to the gym in the middle of the night. Um, we're having our first practice service um, on our one-year anniversary. We'd send out all these invitations for Easter Sunday. And um, sure enough, as I'm on the way, I'm like, God, if you want to let all your crappy sound equipment get stolen, that's fine. Um, but I realized there's one thing, God, you don't own. We had borrowed one of these wireless microphones. Um, we, it was a bare dynamic microphone that was, y'all, this is 30 years ago. It was 550 bucks. Okay, that, these wireless mics are like $1,000 a piece. They're very expensive. Back then, even more so compared to today's prices. And we had borrowed this. Now, if I had really thought it through, we, would have, we should have never had it. We should have never borrowed anything that expensive. We started our whole church with $500. Everything we owned wasn't worth All of our sound equipment was $200. They stole it all. And I, I told God, I said, God, you, can, you cannot let them steal that, that microphone. I mean, that microphone, you, you own the sheep and cattle on a thousand hill, Lord, but you don't own that microphone. And I got there, as God is my witness, they told everything in that room. Except for what? The wireless microphone. You know where it was hidden? In the middle of a white table in plain sight. And you just, how in the world did they miss that? God either blinded them or they were angels to start with, like I said. Now listen, when I told our church family what happened, they were not like super Jesus followers like you guys are. They were, they were rough. They, they were praying and curse words were in their prayers. You know, God, blankety, blank, we're going to blankety. And, and look, that's how they prayed. And, 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 and they wanted to beat the devil out of who? They wanted to find and beat the devil. It was vigilante evangelism. We invented it. And if they could have beaten, if they had a, it would be like, do you know Jesus? You better, you better repent now because you're about to meet him. The, this was the crowd that birthed, that started our church, okay? And, um, in fact, the, the next week we had church, and I slept in the parking lot in a, in a minivan with a 357 under my pillow. That, I know that bothers some of you. Pastor Gary's a gun. I told you I grew up a little redneck, and nobody was going to take 
what God did. So I had to get up before the church and, and be like pastorally, you know, well, God will provide. God, you know, Romans 8, 28 says God brings good out of bad. And, you know, God knew this would happen. All this stuff. But really, I, I wanted to beat the devil out of somebody, too. And I was mad at God and mad at, at whoever took our stuff. And it was like, we're done. You know, we might as well just quit. So I go home, and I call 11 friends that Monday. This is, you know, before email. Um, and I call 11 friends and say, look, this is what happened. I need you to send me $100. And this is, there was no Venmo back then. This was to send money to somebody fast. It was either Western Union or FedEx. And they wrote out checks. I asked them to write out checks and have FedEx pick it up. And here's what happened. We had seen, we had seen, I'll try to finish in two minutes. We had seen this sound, sound system that was a $5,000 sound system up in Deltona. A church went out of business. Remember I told you, they are, uh, churches go under, you know, four out of five in the first year. This is a brand new sound system. They only owed $1,100 on it. It's $5,000 PV sound system. Might as well have been $11 million, y'all. There's no way. We looked at it. We had, we were envious. We're like, oh man, that would be so nice. I mean, it was such a big, it was such a big price. I don't even think we really prayed about it. We, we weren't like, God, please give us this sound system. That'd be a great story. But we, we didn't even pray. We're like, yeah, way too much money. Even if we had the money, we wouldn't do that. I, I call all these friends. I ask them, 11 of them for $100. By, I'm not lying. By Wednesday at 10:30 in the morning, I have all these, all these FedEx envelopes. And I'm opening them all up, and I'm getting checks from people I've never heard of. $2,400 in checks. Everybody gave me 100 and then they told two friends, and they told two friends. I had this one little, this one little check. It was for $50 from this little old lady. Obviously, it was a little late because it was like 50, you know what I mean? You can tell by the handwriting. And um, in her Sunday school class, we heard about your tragedy, and we wanted to help. God can do anything. And when I told our 50 or 60 people that Easter Sunday morning what had happened, and how we got this brand new $5,000 sound system for $1,100 and the $550 bear diner and, and more than that. God took like this tragedy. We're going to beat the snot out of these people. And our faith just went, whoo, God can do anything. And now, you know, the prayers had no curse words in them. <laughs> it, it, it was a Christmas miracle. It was an Easter miracle. Now listen, I'll tell you about the chest of Joe Ash getting started next week. We'll talk about the movie theater um, and the school and all of those things. But listen, God has not brought this church this far to ever leave us. And these stories of our heritage, I hope you can build and borrow that faith to face whatever you're going through. Let me just thank him right now, and we'll pause. I hope you'll be able to be here next week for the big, big miracles. We're going to talk about the million-dollar eagle miracle. We're going to talk about the turtles, how, how they saved the day. We're going to, we're going to talk about you know, some of, the, some of the, the, the playground, the pavilion, some of these other big miracles. Hopefully you'll be here. Heavenly Father, we love you so much. We thank you. We obviously know that everything that has happened here, you have done. It's been in spite of us, not because of us. Um, I thank you that you've given us strong faith and that you have you've built on that faith year after year after year. And we, we have survived 30 years, and I know, Lord, you're going 
You're going to provide for this church for another 30. And then another 30. And someday I'm going to be sitting in heaven. Tuning into the Stones of Remembrance of Seminole Community Church. And it's going to be my son, Josh, and my daughter, Kristen, and my grandkids, Roman and Milan. They're going to be telling the stories. And their generation is going to be telling the stories. Thank you for letting us be a part of what you have done in the lives, the changed lives of the people of Seminole Community Church. Thank you so much for letting me be their pastor. For working in my life and speaking to me. And I use these stories to build up our faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.